Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. For this episode, I spoke with Jan Bostock. Jan is a consultant clinical psychologist who works in the Northeast and Cumbria wellbeing hub for health and social care staff. She's also a key figure in the development of the power threat meaning framework. I really wanted to talk to Jan because I think there are important questions of power and social justice that are key to grappling with the systemic issues around the mental health of those working for the NHS and social care. So we began by reflecting on her experiences of the pandemic. The pandemic happened for me within two or three months of me retiring from um, having worked in NHS mental health services for over 30 years. So it was a bit of a strange time um, and a time, you know, when my life was changing enormously. And I, um, I, I was very keen to, to keep some work going um, and actually being able to go back and do some work has been a gift in COVID because, you know, otherwise it was going to be a very unstructured and odd time to be around. So I think the way it's affected me is the way it's affected everybody. Um, that horrible kind of ongoing threat of um, physical health worries, but particularly for me because um, I'm involved in the care of my mother-in-law who's 94 four now and very frail and like lots of people you know we really worried about her getting COVID and um and then had to look after her and care for her more intensively when she was very unwell and all, all the anxiety around that was emphasized and amplified really by COVID worries and also organizing ourselves and carers and making sure we stayed as protected as we could so um I think you know, for all of us, there's been uncertainty, disruption, that horrible anxiety of constant change. Um, so some things have settled down at times, but generally it's had an impact on us at home and at work. And there's been this horrible kind of loss of control of our lives, really. But having said that, I think um, I've been far less affected than particular groups of people. And that's really concerned me because um, particularly um, people in key worker roles, people with learning disabilities, people living in institutionalised settings, they have been so terribly affected um, by COVID. And I think one of the um, concerns that I've had particularly is around the effect on on black people, nurses, doctors um, who've disproportionately suffered through COVID and um, have you know far too many of them have died um and had their lives put at risk and been very unwell because of because of the pandemic so I think while we've all experienced being unsettled and threatened by it it's been particularly unsettling for some groups of people and we know that um 
people who are already experiencing disadvantage, those inequalities have been amplified by the pandemic. I think just one other thing to mention is just the kind of solidarity and teamwork and pulling together that's happened with COVID and that sense of in a crisis. Rebecca Solnit talks about this, about that, that propensity we have to reach out to each other and to tend and befriend and that, that is hugely protective. It, it can be tiring and can wear a bit thin, but I think it's really important to hang on to that too, that you know, we've seen mutual aid groups, apparently 900 mutual aid groups s- spread around the country through um, through the height of the lockdown. Um, our neighbourhood, I think, is closer than it, it, it was before. So there's been time for different creative things to do. And there's been some humour and some fun alongside terrible tragedy and uncertainty. Yeah, I certainly resonate with that in terms of having a sense of living in in my neighborhood for I think nearly nine years but it's really only been the last couple of years through the pandemic that I've met people and and spoken to people and um certainly our neighbors how you know at one point we're sort of the only people we would socialize with over the fence having a, a coffee or glass of wine or something and Jan I know you mentioned that um through the pandemic you you've you've started work in one of the staff wellbeing hubs um can you tell tell me about that about the hubs and about the work you've been doing the opportunity fairly early on quite a few um newly retired colleagues joined a helpline that was set up in the immediate kind of aftermath of of the pandemic and um, we offered um, telephone support to people and then that's been more formalized um and there are a number of regional hubs and I'm part of the Northeastern Cumbria Wellbeing Hub. And this is for NHS and social care staff. And it provides a whole range of, of different interventions, really. So it provides the helpline, which is um, staffed all through the week. Um, and it means that anybody can ring up at any time and they will get somebody to talk to that day. So it might be a one-off or it might be that they want to speak to somebody on the helpline two or three times. There's also um, a therapy service for people. A number of people fall between gaps in services. Any of us who work in mental health services are so aware that there's a huge gap. There's a long, long wait for IAPTA services um, often and a very high threshold for people to be seen in the secondary mental health services so the the therapy service as part of the hub is trying to bridge that gap for staff in order to be more responsive um there's also a number of other things that um that the hub provides so things like um team support groups mindfulness coaching and mentoring music and art um opportunities staff webinars and a huge number of self-help resources and also an online um, self-compassion course. I think the idea is that therapy isn't the answer for everybody. And in fact, actually, that, that's not a great message. The ways forward are to have a range of things that bolster people's well-being and keep them going through a very difficult time. So I think one of the characteristics of this service is that it's outward focus. It's not just 
bolstering individuals, but also feeding back to the acute um, hospitals, the mental health um, foundation trusts and care homes and the ambulance service and primary care, feeding back to them about what's going on and can we be working more proactively to prevent some of the problems that people are facing. And what themes have come up, Jan, in your work? One of the uh, one of the early themes that came up was around the scale of distress and the scale the scale of illness and death. And often you get um, the people who are kind of needing somebody to talk to. There can be um, a link between their own experiences in their history, past history, or recent history, um, and then that being exacerbated by what's happening now. I think also we have been struck by the scale of loss um, being very difficult for people and for the range of people involved in healthcare and social care. So, you know, people like chaplains and GPs, psychiatrists, nursing staff, care staff. And um, I think the volume of that tragedy that they're dealing with has really impacted on them and probably combined with the relative isolation that COVID has brought for people so your usual kind of networks and usual um, resources haven't been available that's one issue the other issue has been the demands at work so very high workloads low staffing and the staffing really affecting you know day-to-day work for people Um, very physically and emotionally demanding, people carrying unpredictable and high risks. So um, the nature of the work being traumatic, and we've had an increasing number in the hub of people working in acute settings, um, just very, very weary and exhausted and not having a sense that it's going to change, but actually that it's, you know, it's, it's getting worse again. So I I think that's been one of the difficult things about the pandemic. We've, you know, we've got a psychology around crisis, haven't we, in managing crises. But this is a very prolonged period of time to be working in an unusually pressurised way. So I think that that's um, a theme as well. I think the other theme, although maybe people are getting more used to this, but that they had to be adapt at work. They were changed. They were put on different wards. They were put on different teams. They had to do different tasks. And for some people, that was really challenging. Um, you know, someone who's perhaps coming up to retirement that then suddenly has to go and do speech and language therapy in a different ward or um, do nursing roles in specialist areas that they're not familiar with at all. Um so people being moved around and we know that change is unsettling but also um, I think when it's change and you're feeling that threat of not knowing what you're doing and feeling not proficient in that area it's, it's very unsettling and I think that brings us to a term that I hadn't come across actually before the pandemic but the idea of moral injury and people don't say don't use that term but Time and time again, we hear from people who feel that their practice is compromised by the very difficult situations that they're working in. And for most of us who go into the NHS, we're very values driven. And it really, really hurts people when they're operating 
in situations that that don't bring out the best quality of care or where they're not able to meet people's needs in the way that they think they should. Um, I, I think that's a, a very important theme. Um, I think also that there's probably less scope for staff to have control over the situations, to use their initiative, to manage things that, you know, we've had to resort to a very command and control management style, which can be quite difficult. Um, so, yes, change and that threat. Also, I think, um, and Rachel Clark wrote about this in her book. I don't know whether you came across um, breathtaking, but she wrote about the terrible kind of conflict between home and work. And I think that's an issue where, you know, you have people who've shown huge commitment and gone to work and actually moved out of the family home in order to protect patients and protect their families and um i think for women there's this terrible sense of not doing things right you know that that they're they're not meeting their children's needs that they're not being the parent they want to be but that they need to um carry on at work and and do the best they can in their work roles so i, I do think that's that's been an issue um i think financial pressures and um, you know, we're seeing people who are in work, um, but they're part of families, they're part of um, wider social networks where partners were furloughed or partners were losing their jobs. So the whole system obviously um, is, is affected by, by that. So I think people's personal circumstances and that sort of interface between work and home has been really heightened by, by the pandemic. And I was wondering, you talked about the kind of range of interventions that the, the hub offers. Um, and, and I was thinking about, particularly from a more traditional sort of psychology point of view, that, as you said, you know, therapy isn't always the answer. It's not helpful for everyone and certainly not all of the time. And I guess thinking about when people, when therapy is useful um, and whether while we're still in the midst of not an ongoing crisis, as you said, but a kind of chronic state of threat, um, how helpful, how useful, how able people are to access therapy. And I wondered what you've seen in terms of the, the different interventions that, that the hubs have offered, what has been helpful, you know, what have people responded to, what have people been drawn to and held on to during this time? One of the really important characteristics of the hub is that sense of fellow feeling with the people using the service. So there are a number of nurses that staff the helpline and they'll often talk to other nurses and share experiences and commonalities. And I think um, same with that there's a real strong sense of us. And, you know, we really believe that's an important way of, of being. So there's a connection and one of the things that the staff emphasize in um, defining what they do is that they make a human connection it's a colleague to colleague connection with um, with the person ringing and that i mean that's it's very important i think 
Um, so there's a sense of solidarity and a sense of shared experience and a really strong sense of validating what people are coming with. So people are coming with difficulties, which, you know, we might call threat responses, but really understanding what people are coming with is in the context of the, the world and the situation that they're in and that any of us in that situation would feel, you know, in some way similar. So there's that strong um, validating sense of commonality between all of us involved, um, which you can do, you know, within a big NHS family in a way. And it's been a kind of, um, well, it's been quite a revelation um, and quite, I think, quite exposing and, testing for for the staff on the hub too because they're very kind of open and concerned about the the scale of distress that they're witnessing and also that you know organizations our health service is so constrained so we know that some managers are quite sympathetic to workload issues and you know we'll talk to staff about managing that and you know really um supportive but also impotent to actually change the situation and staff are going back into teams where the workload really is too great. Um, so it is very, it's very challenging for managers as well who are very caught up in, in this. Um, and I think just having the opportunity to share and hear that. Um, and we've had, um, the, the hub has been used by staff at every level. So we've had, you know, regional managers, we've had team managers, and we've had support workers and staff working um, at every grade and band, and um, which, you know, feels very important. And the, the hub does feel very accessible in that way. Having a phone line is very important, I think. It's interestingly different. There is the helpline, but also there is some one-to-one follow-up. But there is also this team work and mentoring and coaching um, and also that kind of celebratory work together around there's been um, a drama project and um, music and arts, um, which I think is very important too. Um, And the other thing that I've been involved with, which I think is is important and there's probably further scope for that is working with managers and training around what does good management look like and actually you know that's important all of the time but why why is it particularly important that we um that we manage in a, a collaborative way through this very difficult time and um i think that's that's an important approach to validate that for managers too and leaders not everybody's a manager, but everybody's a leader. And there was something that you said that struck me about maybe what the hub provides as that human to human connection being mm. a really important antidote to some of the very kind of dehumanizing processes that we can find ourselves caught up in in the workplace. Um, and yeah, people can feel just like, you know, cogs in a, in a big wheel and, you know, those kind of management processes are often very opaque and, and nameless and faceless. Um, so to be able to have a, a place where you can access a human connection and, and dip into that, I imagine, is 
an important kind of nurturing and sustaining antidote to to that. I wanted to ask you the other part of work that I know you've been very involved with um, over years is the development of the power threat meaning framework. Um, and I wondered if you could explain what that is and, and how it came about. Well, the power threat meaning framework um, was supported by the Division of Clinical Psychology in the British Psychological Society as a, a way of developing a very open framework that was um, seen as an alternative to a diagnostic framework in order to have a more meaningful understanding of people's distress and troubled or troubling behaviour. So it was co-produced by psychologists and service users and took some years to develop. And I was involved as a critical reader at that stage. And then since then, have become involved in the um, the committee, which is developing it in an ongoing way and also providing training and um, more sort of co-developed and co-produced work. So it's a framework. It's, it's a way of exploring further and providing a lens for people to look at how their um, difficulties, their strengths, their resources, their coping strategies and survival strategies are linked with their experiences of power, of threat and um, meaning and what's around them. So it's a very environmental model. Um, and it assumes that we all experience distress at times and that there isn't a separate group of people with a mental with mental health problems, that actually all of us are in that same boat when it comes to if you put us in certain circumstances, we will all um, use our survival strategies as as best we can. And I think that model really suits the understanding of staff well-being because what we're trying to do is to develop our um, our understanding of how systems cause and can influence how people feel. Um, but our individualistic psychological models may be useful for some of that journey, but they're not always that useful for that holistic understanding which really emphasizes prevention and which takes the focus off individual functioning and onto the whole system. Um, so we all make sense, so we all take meaning from what happens to us and this influences how we experience and express our distress. Um, and meaning for staff is so important, so how we interpret you know, feeling sick before we go to work and think, oh, God, I can't cope. Or one of the things I was so um, familiar to me working when I was working full time in the NHS was that sense that I was never on top of the IT and I was slow to, you know, complete the the documentation that needed completing. I was never on top of things that I was, you know, I felt very inadequate. But actually, those pressures and demands are really difficult for everybody. And I think the power threat meaning framework really helps us see how our worlds affect us and helps us to get insight around that. But actually that insight is gained through looking out, through looking beyond ourselves as the only kind of um, aspects of, of change. So, um, and with the right approach, 
if we have that kind of insight, um, then we can look to support each other. Then we can look beyond individual or individualistic solutions, which I think are, are, are very powerful. And maybe, Jana, because I know my understanding of the Path Threat Meaning Framework is um, a, a series of really useful questions that can help with this elaboration. Um, I wonder if you could talk us through those questions. I'd love to. Yes. Well, the Power Threat Meaning Framework has very much been developed in a kind of mental health setting. So the, um, the, there's a really good book, Straight Talking Introduction to the Power Threat Meaning Framework by um, Mary Boyle and Lucy Johnson, who've had a lot to do with the development. Well, they, they've pioneered its, its development. Um, and the questions that are asked are often around individuals' functioning and strengths and resources and situations. So the questions are asked things like, what's happened to you? Um, what is happening to you? And that's a way of understanding how is power operating in that person's life? What sense do they make of what is happening? And often people come with stories of um, kind of, um, illness and suffering and individual kind of signs of distress and what we're doing is linking what's happened to them with how they feel and what meaning they're giving those feelings and then thinking about what threats are around for that person and how what threat responses are they using because we all use we all use threat responses if we're put in certain situations how are we responding how um how is the person surviving and what matters to them what are their strengths so in a way um we all carry stories around with us to explain how we feel and often the story that we're given is a medical story when we come into mental health services and it's a kind of illness narrative about what might be wrong with us. And the power threat meaning framework draws on trauma-informed practice to say it's not about what's wrong with us, but about what's happening and what or what has happened to us. And what we've done is we've translated these questions that the power threat meaning framework suggests. And we've thought about how are they relevant to the hub and the, um, the helpline. So the kinds of questions that we're asking when people come to the helpline are what's brought the person to the helpline or the hub what's going on for them what's going on for them at work what's going on for them at home are the demands that are in excess of what they can provide what opportunities for control do they have have they got support what are their relationships like and are their roles clear or you know as with we've seen with the pandemic there's a huge sort of role blurring and interference between work and home um, and then we're thinking are there any particular threats that are kind of shouting out to us so threats like loss um, bereavement or um, threat to working well that kind of moral injury threat of not being able to do the job you think you should be doing is there a threat to relationships some people weren't able to see um boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, they were, there were huge kind of pressures on relationships, as well as um, pressures on relationships with parents and with loved ones. Um, 
you know, who might might have been relatives or friends. Um, are there any threats from the illness itself or from other illnesses, threats to finances and threats to identity? And the power threat meaning framework is very good at describing the huge range of threats that we can experience. And then the third um, question is, what threat responses or ways of surviving are being used? And what we try to bring in earlier um, in those sets of questions is what strengths are people already using? And, you know, these the people that we're seeing are hugely resourceful. Um, they're, you know, keeping jobs going that um, are often very demanding. Um, so just reminding them and asking them about um, what resources they're drawing on. And then the next question is, what sense of their situation are they making? What are their beliefs? What are their feelings? What are their bodily reactions? And how is that influencing what sense they're making? Often people feel very, very guilty about not feeling on top of things at work. Um, and the other very prevailing um, belief and such a you know, very important powerful force in the NHS and in social care is that sense of teamwork and if you're not on top of things that you're letting your colleagues down and it's interesting to discover that through these interviews Peeling feel, people feel really bad if they've got to take time off um, people feel very loyal to their jobs and to their colleagues but that can add to the pressures and then what strengths and resources are the person is the person drawing on what strengths are there at work, um, their friends, their family, um, yoga or distractions or music um, and their values. Values are very, very strongly protected. They can be pressurising at times, but also they can if we can remember what we're doing this for, that's, you know, that is very sustaining. Um, we've also what we're trying to do is to help people to look up and out as well. Lots of um, suggestions around connecting with the trade union, um, mentoring, connecting with somebody else, perhaps from a different team who might help you through a difficult time or coaching around career choices. So it's not just looking inwards, but also looking outwards. So those are the key questions that come out of the Power Threat Meaning Framework, which are very usable in everyday language and everyday practice. I find that so powerful, just thinking about my own therapy work with health professionals. I think often people are coming with the question of what's wrong with me and how do I fix it? Um, and I think to be able to have a space to step back from that and to ask those questions about, you know, what's happened to you and you know, what have you had to do to survive in that can just be so powerful in, in enabling people to tap into a sense of compassion for themselves and to shift their relationship with their distress, being able to see it as something that they can um, take care of and respect rather than as a sign of being weak or broken. Um, and just having that kind of different conversation can be really transformative, I think. Yes, I think so. I think so. And actually, um, 
the way that we ask those questions and the way that we forge that relationship with people um, is very important so that we are um, we're equalizing power in our relationships with people and I, I think the power threat meaning framework is good for reminding us of that too I, I think um, the other thing that the scope for is for us to think about organizations from the perspective of of power threat and meaning um, and strengths as well and think about how do organizations respond when they're under threat and you mentioned before you know about how um the way that we're managed and led in health organizations can be very objectifying and and i think you know we could see that as a kind of a defense and an organizational defense and you know what happens when the um the organization feels under threat um and often it goes into overdrive of asking you for more information for you know for reassurances that practices actually good enough but actually that can be very alienating um so i think i think there's the the um the power threat meaning framework is really helpful for us to think about what does the organization do so one of the things that i think can happen is that staff can feel mistrusted or blamed or scapegoated that there can be a kind of micromanagement and hypervigilance around staff performance this is actually um doesn't bring out the best in them and there can be a kind of leadership which doesn't harness staff initiative and staff strength and one of the things that we did really promote in cntw the trust that i was um part of was a push to collective leadership um because we often waste a lot of initiative that staff have. Staff have really interesting, challenging lives. They can bring so much to the work environment, which can help for collective solutions and problem solving and harnessing people's strengths. And I, I think that can get lost if you have a very command and control um, culture. So I think changing the culture in our NHS leadership and in our organisations is really important. We know that the more that staff are involved in decision making, the more that they um, have a voice in the way that the organisation runs, the better the patient care and the better the deal is for people who use services. Um, I think another kind of organisational threat response is around organisational change and you know that if things aren't working well and you fix it by reorganizing services which is incredibly threatening and and unsettling for staff and I, and can put a kind of pause on the quality of services improving um and also the other i don't know whether this is true in acute settings but certainly in in mental health settings there's a belief that technical solutions are going to improve the quality of care and make life so much easier for staff so you know if you bring in more and more electronic devices and um enable people to work in that way that somehow that's going to free us up and make us better clinicians and um i don't think that always always worked we could become enslaved to these digital kind of procedures um but i think um what you said about objectifying people people really need 
um, they need to feel important and that their efforts are recognised and valued. And and that isn't just about a kind of, um, I don't know, uh, a thank you from the, the chief exec, although that's really important. It really has to be meaningful and feel authentic and sincere. Um, and unfortunately, that puts huge pressure on managers and colleagues to be very available to staff in a way that actually is is very very difficult in the current time so um i i found the power threat meaning framework really helpful to bring alive an understanding of how organizations work so for instance um you know managers can feel that staff are uh, can be a bit sort of reluctant to change or to weather change but actually often organizational change comes with threats and i think the power threat mini framework really helps us to recognize that the other thing that i think is is a lovely combination of um of a kind of community psychology approach with the power threat meaning framework and also with what we've heard through the pandemic particularly from stephen riker the social psychologist is this sense of the power of us the power of collective action, the power of a strong identity that we're all in it together, that we can all support each other. And that's why it's so important that our leaders, be they health leaders in health or he, leaders in politics, that they are seen to be acting and living in a way that's congruent with what we're all having to do. And that's a that's actually a very powerful intervention in itself, which is why it's been so dispiriting and difficult over the last few weeks seeing the evidence that that, that hasn't been true of, of some of our political leaders. So the power of us, I think, is something we should be harnessing. Yeah, so just for the listeners, we're, we're recording this just uh, before Christmas um, 2021, and we're sort of having daily revelations around um, ministers and, you know, 10 Downing Street having parties um, while the rest of us were under strict lockdown measures. And as you say, Jan, it just feels so painful to, and so damaging to, um, to that sense of us and to the sense of coming together to weather this horrific storm. One of the really interesting aspects of the power threat meaning framework is that it talks about ideological power and it talks about the importance of messaging, the importance of, you know, what our social media messages are, what our culture is communicating. And um, that does matter to individuals. And that, I think um, that that's very well described in the framework. So the kind of embodiment of compassionate leadership needs to be um, really strongly kind of communicated. Um, so if we get messages around, I don't think that um, professionals, health professionals are avoiding seeing people face to face or, you know, that teachers don't want to go back to school and be in the classroom those things are, are very damaging. It's giving a message that these people aren't really committed and, and they're, they're a them, they're not us. They're, and I think that's so important is this um, kind of sense of, of promoting 
um, a stronger sense of unity and a stronger sense of shared identity. And also that we're, we achieve our best results in terms of um, health outcomes and good practice if we lead through people, not over people. And, and I think it's the same being true about the pandemic. Actually, people's cooperation with restrictions is very, very high. Um, and the media have tended to overplay exceptionalism. But um, growing a sense of a united us, that we're not an in-group and an out-group, there isn't an elite who's doing something different, that we're all in this together, I think is a profoundly important lesson to learn. And I wonder, Jan, how that relates to um, some of the the differences or the dichotomies that we see when comparing health services with social care and those staff who might work in, in care homes, for example, um, who I think have far less visibility and far less status in our society, even though they're doing we could argue, the most important work. Yes. There's been some very, very upsetting conversations with with care staff who just felt so committed to their work and and yet just the scale of loss that they witnessed um, in the care homes during that second wave was was traumatising. And I think you're right about... The fact that they're not rewarded financially particularly well for doing the jobs that they do. They work long hours. They often have very little control over shift working. And the other thing that struck me was sometimes you would start to ask about the person's personal life. And you'd find out that when they weren't at work, they were doing 30 hours childcare for their grandchildren so that, you know, there was a combination of pressures and demands that was really very great um, and really sort of propping up other members of their families. And I, I think you're right that all of that work isn't really valued and, and really weighed very heavily on women, I think, throughout the pandemic. Is there anything else, Jan, that in terms of the power through it meaning framework that, that we haven't talked about that you want to... I was thinking about what are the sort of what's the summary of why is the power threat meaning framework useful because it's it adds to other models that we've lived with and you know appreciated for many years like I think trauma-informed practice has been profoundly influential and important for improving mental health care um but what I think the power threat meaning framework does is that it explicitly looks at power dynamics And it enables us to understand experiences at work with reference to fairness and justice, because how we interpret what happens at work is so important for how we feel. So things in the um, in the health service, as you know, in nursing and in psychology and allied health professionals, we've got this very kind of um, rigid band system and people are very aware of where they sit in their bands and what they do being fair in comparison to other people Um, and in some ways that is very enabling but the in other ways it can be kind of stultifying and difficult for people to have a career advancement or career development so 
I think the power threat meaning framework gives us a way of analysing how that is significant for individuals and for the organisation. Because actually, I think we can withstand a lot if we think things are fair. And um, and that was that's one of the reasons why this recent sort of surge of evidence around some people breaking rules has been so upsetting for people because we all have a strong core need for fairness. So that that's one reason why I think the power threat meaning framework is very important. It also changes the narrative from looking at individuals and pathologizing how we feel. It changes the narrative to looking at our resources, our strengths, and the social and organisational worlds that are around us. It helps us to connect what's happened to us with how we feel and how we function. So it's hugely validating um, and enabling for individuals and for organisations. And I think it it actually facilitates us connecting with others and it facilitates collective awareness. And as I pointed out earlier, it helps us to reflect on our own use of power. How is our service operating in a way that is genuinely empowering and um, enabling for people? And then I think it sets the scene for action because it makes us aware of what we need to do. So, you know, we know that compassionate leadership is hugely important. We know that enabling connection between people is hugely important. But we also know that our organisations need to be set up so that they're not asking too much of people, that the demands are manageable, that people have a measure of control and autonomy and have the support that they need. So it's about how we feel, which psychology is good at talking about, but also the power threat meaning framework helps us to look at the conditions that we need to thrive at work. Brilliant. Thank you, Dan. And for people who might want to read more about the power threat meaning framework, um, maybe particularly for non-psychologists who might be interested and who might want to take some of these ideas back to their workplace, what are the best places um, to find out more? Well, there is a website on the British Psychological Society with lots of examples of good practice. Um, And also this book from 2020 that's called The Straight Talking Introduction to the Power Threat Meaning Framework by Mary Boyle and Lucy Johnston. Um, So there are a range of resources around. I think it's also worth looking at nice guidance because it's all very consistent in what they're saying and what we're saying from a psychological point of view. I'm just thinking now a bit more personally, Jan, about what are the sorts of things that that keep you going in the midst of what um, you've been managing professionally and personally? Um, What keeps you going? Well... I do have a very nice life and I'm very lucky and very comfortable and you know I live in a lovely place and I've got a lovely dog and family and um, notice I say the dog first anyway so that does keep me going hugely and my connection with my family and my friends is enormously protective and enables courage and creativity um, which is you know very important I think um, I think I have a very strong sense of commitment to the NHS and commitment to social care and 
a just and fair kind of community and and those values are um you know they are important and they kind of they do keep us going um and i think my i have a strong connection with other psychology colleagues and health colleagues um and that's very affirming as well and and very energizing so i mean although i've been somewhat anxious about today but these kind of connections actually and you know talking to you Paula are really important because they just they give us authority they kind of um they bolster our our knowledge and our epistemological power actually and that's so important because we can get you can get distracted and lost and feel very sort of overwhelmed by what's going on so I think those connections are important too Thank you. Well, it's been brilliant talking to you, Jan, and thank you for putting some of those really complex, um, big ideas into a lovely, digestible and actionable form. So thank you so much. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, take good care.